This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a country called China. Some call it China. China has a territory called Hong Kong. Hong Kong does not seem to like being part of China. China does not seem to care that much about what Hong Kong thinks. Or do they? The Chinese government could lower the boom at any time, which is why many are wondering if the non-intervention by authorities in the occupation of Hong Kong's parliamentary chamber might have been the most interventionist thing of all. So inside the parliament was the BBC's Nick Beek with his inside peek. The scenes speak for themselves, really. There's an eerie silence now. You can see. Well, if the scenes did speak for themselves, maybe there would be an eerie silence. But since you are describing the scene, there is not silence, not eerie, not self-explanatory. Oh, what's in that room, Nick? Let's just have a look. This is maybe um, a room through here. It's not a huge amount to see in here, but this is one of the the building, the one of the rooms that the protesters came into. If we, if we just go- Okay, we get it. There's graffiti, there's garbage. It was all ransacked. But here's the key point I actually wanted to play. And crucially, the police did not stop them. And I think in the coming hours and days, people were saying, why did the police let it get to this? They were criticized a few weeks ago for not doing enough to try and stop the, the protesters in a peaceful way, in a more effective way. And I think today the pendulum has completely swung. They've stood back. And frankly, we have seen protesters run amok on the streets of Hong Kong today. Kind of culturally freighted, you know, thrown around, run amok. But here's the worry, that the protesters or the protestiest of them were allowed to go nuts so as to discredit the rest of the protesters. Furthering this theory, another BBC reporter, Celia Hatton. Many people today are are going along with that conspiracy theory that this trap was set in order to draw out those more radical elements, those more radical protesters, allowing the authorities now to go in and, and start to arrest people. So that's one popular conspiracy theory, but there's a rebuttal to it. And here it is, as quoted on the Economist Intelligencer podcast in an interview with Regina Ip, a Law and Order member of the Hong Kong legislature, who brought up the famous Tiananmen Square protests of June 4th, 1989. My own conspiracy theory is there are people trying to manufacture June 4th crisis in Hong Kong. Who, who would be doing that? All the people who want to subvert China. Aha! Counter-conspiracy theory with a different and wider conspiracy theory. I guess one of the conspiracy theories must be right, although if everyone's talking about them so openly, don't they just become theories? So I have a theory. It's non-conspiracy type. The Beijing government didn't allow the takeover of the legislature to happen to discredit some extreme protesters, just like they didn't allow the Dalai Lama to say that if the next Dalai Lama is a woman, she would be pretty. He said that, by the way. They didn't allow the Uyghurs to commit transgressions so they could point to these transgressions as a pretext. No, they just arrested the Uyghurs. China is the most incarcerative country on the planet. If they want to punish, they punish. If they calculate it's better to hold their fire or to let the passions in Hong Kong die out, they will do that too. But I do not think there is a 
grand game of tricking adversaries into going too far. They are pretty adept at detaining, arresting, smearing, and jailing whoever they want, whenever they want, whyever they want. And while Hong Kong may be a little trickier than the normal parts of China, I don't think China is hamstrung by trying to game out the maximally cleverest strategy. China is no stranger, in fact, to being quite brazen. On the show today, I spiel about our leader, a man who is a stranger to a well-strung-together argument. But first, gun violence is a problem that consistently bedevils American society, and yet, frustratingly, there are solutions available. They're widely known. They're actually working, clearly working, and still many refuse to listen or to believe, or to implement. Searching for a magic bullet solution to gun violence is like searching for a buttercream solution for gout, but there are strategies that work. And here to discuss them and what stymies the efforts to combat gun violence is Thomas Apt, a veteran of the Obama White House, New York's decades-long and quite successful fight against gun violence, and the author of the new book, Bleeding Out. Thomas Apt is a researcher and a crime fighter. I'll call him that. He worked for Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. He worked for the Obama administration. He's now a senior fellow at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and he has a new book out called Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. Professor Apt, welcome. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. So I know it says a bold new plan, but that's a little bit of a mislabeling. What you really have is a series of plans. You kind of collect the good ideas that are working, highlight some ideas that aren't working, and try to urge us towards more progress than decline. That seems smart, but yet it's not that popular. Well, that's sort of a, a central theme in the book and why I wrote it. You know, the challenge is that if you look at the research, if you look at everyday practice, if you look at what's happening around the country, there are all these green shoots of successful efforts and successful strategies to reduce violence, but no one has taken them to scale. And so we're not really learning from our success. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time at both the local, state, and federal level, and I've had some wins, but I've also had some losses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those losses were sort of related to advocating for these programs, but they really had no political constituency. And so the book is really an effort to really sort of to ask people to sort of examine their priors and maybe think about urban violence a little a little bit differently so that they can really benefit from the evidence and learn that this allegedly intractable problem that we think we really can't do anything about we actually can do something yeah. about and it won't even require a lot of new legislation or a whole lot of uh, new dollars in terms of taxes. It's not exactly the money ball of crime fighting because it doesn't follow one compelling figure, but throughout it does what I like, which is it's just driven by evidence. And when things work, let's talk about why they work and how they work. And when they don't work, let's also acknowledge that. And it's easy to blame politicians, but I think that there are probably different political currents affecting which policies get adopted. So one is... It is a useful narrative among 
let's say, the Make America Great crowd that the urban centers are lost and uh, it's American carnage and no facts can penetrate that. There are some little bits of truth with that or lots of bits of truth with that when, you know, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh and Chicago and a whole lot of untruth with that. For instance, the city I live in now, how important is that in um, an impediment to progress, just writing off the urban centers like that? I think it's a huge problem. And I think it's also just factually inaccurate. We're actually in the middle of an urban renaissance in the United States, and that's largely prompted by a massive reduction in crime and violence that began in the 1990s. But it really depends on your frame of reference. As I mentioned in the book, if you go back 25 years, we've experienced you know, a huge success in terms of uh, anti-crime policies. If you go back 50 years, right. we've made exactly zero progress. And if you look at the US in comparison with other high-income nations, we have a, a homicide rate that's about five times higher than other wealthy nations, and that's driven by a gun violence rate that's about 25 times higher. Yeah, that explains all of it, right? There's about 17,000 homicides, 14,000 gun homicides in America. That's then, about right. But then gun deaths are also double that for the homicide figure because of suicides. Sure. Suicides, about Two-thirds of gun deaths in the United States are suicides, about one-third is homicide. Unbelievable. Okay, on the other side, though, there are a lot of programs that work, but they're not part of, uh, you know, the trendiest initiatives in law enforcement. For instance, what Oakland is doing, you wouldn't think that too many people... Uh, who are, say, social justice advocates would object to what Oakland is doing. And yet it doesn't seem to spark them as much as let us uh, address the prison population problem. Let's decriminalize marijuana. So talk to me a little bit about Oakland. So Oakland is a very recent, very successful iteration of something known as the group violence reduction strategy. It's been called a million things. It's also been called focused deterrence. It's also been called uh, ceasefire. It got its start way back in the 1990s with Operation Ceasefire, pioneered by David Kennedy and others in Boston, and was sort of a big part of the sort of Boston miracle where yeah. they had a massive reduction in youth violence. So it's been around for a while. It's been very well studied. And Oakland is, is one of the uh, places that has done it and done it successfully. I think Oakland's an important example because the first thing is, is that Oakland's a pretty big city. It's also been a traditionally a very tough city, mm -hmm. tough not just in terms of crime and violence, but also in terms of politics. You know, it's the birthplace of the Black Panthers who were created, you know, in response to police brutality and violence. And so, you know, it is a tough place to get people together around these issues. And then I think another interesting thing about what's happening in Oakland is there has been, especially among progressives, this uh, real lack of comfort with any anti-violence initiative that involves the police and involves any type of aggressive enforcement whatsoever. They just are fundamentally mm -hmm. unhappy with that. In Oakland, you know, targeted enforcement is part of the solution, but the focused deterrence or group violence strategy there is much more balanced than some have been in the past. It really does a good job of offering services and treatment and support 
to the people at the highest risk for violence. Well, tell me what it is in a nutshell. What is the what is the initiative? So basically the way it works is it begins with a problem analysis. And so a bunch of uh, experts get together with police officers and, you know, um, gang interrupters and conflict mediators. And they go over a year, two years, three years. I think in the case of Oakland, it was about 18 months yeah. worth of homicide data. And they literally map out every homicide. And, and, map- and by map, you don't mean geographically only. It's the networks of people who are involved in the homicides. I think I, I actually mean that even more yeah, so. Yeah. And so they're looking at how the perpetrators and victims know one another. And then they're looking at the broader networks that these, that these people belong to. And this is one of the things that we're learning is that, you know, this concept of a gang, this, you know, thing that, you know, Trump keeps beating the drum about you know, is really somewhat of a relic of a a previous time. We have a much more sophisticated understanding. And now we really think about these groups as networks Mm -hmm. because the the sort of traditional gang that's extremely cohesive and extremely hierarchical, we don't see a lot of that in the United States uh, these days, even in places like Chicago and LA where gangs used to be sort of a major, major part of the story. They're still there. But as one uh, Ron Noblet, who's been uh, mediating gang conflicts for decades, said, he said, look, the whole world is flattening out. There's less hierarchy everywhere. Gangs are no exception. <laughs> They've got an open office. You're talking, right? <laughs> right. So I thought that was an interesting way of, way of putting it. So the first thing you do is you, you map this out and you network this out. And what uh, they found in Oakland is that all the conventional wisdom about who was driving the violence in Oakland was actually wrong. Mm-hmm. They basically thought it was a large group of very young uh, teenage male offenders. It turned out it was a very small, you know, a few hundred, less than a fraction of a percent of the entire population of generally older men. And they were, you know, anywhere from, you know, early 20s to early 30s. And so they really had the wrong demographic. So then they learned, so they learned that their problem was actually much smaller and more focused, mm-hmm. which is a big theme in the book. And so then, knowing about the problem, they confront it. And they don't confront it with just law enforcement. They confront it with three basic groups. Law enforcement, community members, you know, community leaders, faith-based leaders, other people, and service providers. Mm-hmm. And they literally bring a bunch of these guys into a room and sit down and talk to them. And they present a very sort of simple but powerful message. And they say, we know what you're doing. And the shooting has to stop. We're here to help you. But if you keep shooting, we're here to stop you. And are they shooting because of economic imperatives? So one of the interesting things about how urban violence has sort of evolved over the past 30 years is that it has really become disconnected from the sort of traditional economic sources. Less and less is it driven by things like drugs or other types of illegal um, sort of money-making activities. And so we see now people, you know, killing one another based on disputes that really are over rather mundane things. They don't stay mundane because while the fight was initially over a girl, then you jump, you know, one of these guys, you beat him up. Then they come back and shoot your guy and then you come back and kill their guy. Now it's a very serious uh, conflict. 
but often the sources are surprisingly mundane. And we see this both with gangs and drugs. So in LA, if you look at the data, a lot of the homicides are gang related. But what does that mean? It means that the either the victim or the perpetrator belong to a gang. If you get under the hood, if you look at the case files, you talk to people who are investigating, you find out actually they're both gang members or yeah. one or but it was over a girl or it right. was over, you know, something and, else. And in these neighborhoods where everyone joins a gang, it's about as useful in some ways of saying, you know, it's either Lakers fans or Clippers fans, since most people in LA are one of them, right? Their gang affiliation isn't the thing that caused the violence. I I think that's a really important point. If you are unfortunate enough to grow up in some of the most disadvantaged communities, you sort of inherit an affiliation and you have to sort of at least loosely affiliate just to get by right. in in your in your neighborhood. And I think it's very important to sort of not view all quote unquote gang or group members as the same. One of the things when I was talking to, you know, for instance, Ray Sol Solorzano, who's now a uh, now a, a preacher doing wonderful work, you know, with youth and with uh, addicts and, you know, helping them turn their lives around. He was formerly a pretty serious gang member in L.A., and so, you know, we really started getting into this. And he said, you know, you know, in my gang and in other gangs, you know, you've got, you know, you've got shot callers, you've got shooters, but you also have the guy who sells the weed. Mm -hmm. you, also, you also have the guy who just comes to the parties. You also have the guy. And, and, and it's really important that even with a dangerous gang, that you don't view everybody the same and that, you know, some very uh, aggressive strategies for a guy who's maybe shot multiple people, killed a few people, that's not appropriate for the guy who, you know, um, sort of loosely affiliates, kind of shows up every now and then, right. but is not sort of actively uh, perpetrating serious crimes. So in Oakland, murder went from what to what? In Oakland, since 2012, it's been reduced by about half. Yeah. And there's been a pretty rigorous analysis of that reduction. And Oakland Ceasefire, this group that we were talking about, is responsible for most of that reduction. So it's about from 100 to 50 total numbers? Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Whatever the total numbers are, can it scale to a city like Chicago, where we're talking about 600 murders? Is there a certain point where you have to just get it under control before you get the people in the room? There seem to be so many people in Chicago who are in these networks. I don't know how you have a room big enough short of, you know, the United Center. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And let me just uh, clarify something. Even in Oakland, nobody's bringing all of these guys into one room right. at once. This is these are small meetings, you know, something that you can kind of reasonably handle. I mean, it seems like a bunch of steps in the process just to sit down. You could you could drag a guy in off the street, but just to sit down and talk to someone who might have an open mind about what you're proposing. There has to be maybe some level of trust. And then if you don't deliver on your promises, word will get out that this is not a program to listen to. There has to be sufficient rigor to this program rather than, you know, a good idea with between one or two people. It has to be rigorous, but it, you also have to be resilient because, you know, the name of the game in this area is you work with the hardest people mm -hmm. to engage, not the easiest people. So these are the people that social services has never been able to reach. They've never gone to a program. They don't cooperate. They don't show up, you know. And so what happens, the programs that work well, be it Oakland Ceasefire or 
Roca in Boston or Ready in Chicago. What they do is they go back again and again. They have street outreach workers who find these guys. You know, these guys curse them out, say, I don't want to do it. They say, fine, well, I'll be back next week. They come again. They knock on their door. They'll find them at a drug house. They'll do whatever it takes. And that's something that I think people don't really understand about the nature of real anti-violence work. It's quality, not quantity. You don't have to work with a ton of people mm-hmm. to get big results in a given city. You know, most most medium to large size cities, it's a few hundred people. Yeah. But you have to change, you have to fundamentally change the way you do business. And you have to go much further than we normally do when we think about sort of traditional social services. Thomas Apt is the author, and the name of the book is Bleeding Out the Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. Great to meet you. Great to be here. And now, the spiel. Donald Trump is not a sensible man. Sensible, practical, level-headed, no-nonsense. He's actually not no-nonsense. He's almost all-nonsense. He's not reasonable. I mean, he has his reasons. They're just never rooted in reason. He's sensible in that he senses stimuli like embarrassment or desires or rage or mockery. He's acutely aware of sensing these phenomena. He just never reacts with sense. He uses his senses but he doesn't make sense. For all the talk of how cruel he is, how inflammatory his words are, how insensitive they are, mostly his words are just confusing. In fact, often befuddling. In a press conference at the G20, he was asked about the decline of Western liberalism, and he answered that yes, Los Angeles and San Francisco seem to be in decline. I am not making this up. It is good that no one asked him about liberal institutions. He might have started talking about the Creedmoor Mental Hospital. When he was interviewed on this trip by his on-screen champion and off-screen consigliere, Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host asked this. You come to where we are now, Osaka or Tokyo, and the cities are clean. There's no graffiti no one going to the bathroom on the street. You don't see junkies. It's very nice, isn't it? Very different from our cities. Yep. Well, no, some of our cities. Some are of right, our but cities. But New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, they, they've got a major problem with, it's very sad. with filth. Okay. Nothing factually wrong so far. I will note that many, many studies indicate that conservatives have a higher sensitivity to filth, a more sensitive disgustometer, if you will. And talk of disgust and his opponents being disgusting often makes its way into Donald Trump's rhetoric. But we can all make sense of that phenomenon. Like, that's not confusing. We could disagree. But when Donald Trump says Hillary Clinton took a disgusting bathroom break during a debate, he's being ridiculous, meaning he's worthy of ridicule. But he's also being, in a way, sensible. You can make sense of his statements. That is not what is going on with this Tucker Carlson interview. Listen, here, Donald Trump goes along with Tucker's premise about filthy American cities. Why is that? Uh, it's a phenomenon that started two years ago. Huh? It's disgraceful. I'm going to maybe, and I'm looking at it very seriously. We're doing some other things, as you probably noticed, like some of the very important things that we're doing now. But we're looking at it very seriously because you can't do that. I'm going to maybe... I'm looking at it very seriously. We're doing some other things that you probably noticed, like some of the very important things that we're doing. We're doing things like the things. 
it's a thought that is, well, if it's a thought, it's incomplete. It's unclear. I don't know what the nouns are. It's disjointed. But please continue, Mr. President. You can't have what's happening where police officers are getting sick just by walking the beat. I mean, they're getting actually very sick. Uh, where people are getting sick, where the people living there are living in hell, too. Although some of them have mental problems where they don't even know they're living that way. In fact, perhaps they like living that way. Uh, They can't do that. We cannot ruin our cities. And you have people that work in those cities. They work in office buildings, and to get into the building, they have to walk through a scene that nobody would have believed possible three years ago. So, three years ago. Okay, so this means during the last days of the Obama administration, things were better. But just now, pretty much tracking with the two and a half years that your administration has been in place, things have gone south. And also, cops on the beat are getting sick. He is so unclear, it's confounding. But the thing is, he could have put a thought together that might actually have a point, a semblance of a point. Here is Gavin Newsom, governor of California, at his state State of the State address. There's another urgent moral issue we must confront. <clears throat> That's this homelessness, homelessness epidemic. So many of California's homeless, whether they're, they're families, veterans, victims of rent spikes, or survivors fleeing domestic violence are invisible and left behind by our society. Too many on the streets are suffering from bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, paranoia, many of them self-medicating with drug or alcohol addictions. And as a consequence, our homeless crisis is increasingly becoming a public health crisis. Last year, we had a hepatitis A outbreak in San Diego. Recently, there was an outbreak of syphilis up in Sonoma, typhus, in Los Angeles, typhus, a medieval disease in California in 2019. I know mayors, I know county supervisors, city councils, all around the state are working hard to reduce homelessness and its underlying causes. But we've got to have their backs. They cannot do it alone. That was clear. That was with context. That was perhaps you could even say actionable. Certainly was sensible. It was based on reports of public health officers getting sick. Maybe Donald Trump doesn't understand there's a difference between public health officers and police officers. Maybe that's giving him too much credit to know that some officers were actually getting sick. You know, it is true that Trump's supporters will cheer and back him no matter what he says, but he's not even giving them workable rhetoric to have an opinion about. These are people who are so easily led and he cannot even lead them. I mean, here's Tucker Carlson, a lackey for Donald Trump, setting him up with an issue that might work for him. It's a real problem. It's a potential issue to use against, say, a former DA from San Francisco, a senator from Boston, a mayor of a blighted East Coast city, a mayor of a somewhat blighted Midwest city. It activates the part of the conservative brain that gets easily repulsed. And yet Trump can't even pick up the ball and run. I mean, if you're Tucker, it must be nice in a way to have this straw dummy sitting across from you who will always nod and never contradict you and probably gives you decent ratings. But it must also be frustrating to know that the straw dummy has a total inability to connect his brain stem with his mouth parts. It's just got to be really dispiriting. Uh, We're looking at it very seriously. We may intercede. We may uh, do something to uh, 
get that whole thing cleaned up. It's inappropriate. Now, we have to take the people and do something. We have to do something. Right. Good follow-up, Tucker. You should expect Donald Trump's proposal on this matter quite soon in American presidential history. You had the 14 points. You had the war on poverty. You had the USA Patriot Act. And soon we will have the president, Donald J. Trump, looking at something very seriously. We may do something. It's not right act of 2019. I would expect its introduction right around the next infrastructure week. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They take it very seriously. They may do something. They're doing some important things they're doing now. TJ Raphael, a phenomenon that started two years ago, is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. What Next, a phenomenon that started a few months ago, is Slate's early morning news show. And today they talk about busing with a professor of history talking about the experiences of, say, someone from Berkeley, California, what busing might have meant to a person like that. The gist, a magic bullet for gun deaths. It's almost like when there's an impasse and arms control talks and you go for the nuclear option. Umpru Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>